you know, some people say it's you know it's a it's a hundred sixty two game season. It's a story that sometimes you don't know the end of the story to the end of the season. That was Mario Alioto, the San Francisco Giants VP of Business Operations. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on the podcast, we feature sports fans, writers, photographers, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 28, part one. In this podcast, Mario shares stories from his time at Candlestick Park, including his first gig with the Giants as a bat boy for visiting teams back in 1973. This episode is part of a series of podcasts we're doing over the course of the baseball season as the Giants celebrate 60 years in San Francisco. In case you missed it, go back and listen to episode 25 with Josh Keppel. Here's Mario. I have to admit, I was a lucky kid. I grew up very close to Candlestick Park, and I started here when I was 12. I guess that was before the uh, the labor laws back then, but I was a, sure. I was a bat boy. My, my, my brother was a bat boy for the year before, 1972, and... Uh, really how it all came about is my dad had a linen route he worked for a linen company and he one of his stops was was the clubhouse Mm -hmm. at candlestick park so my brother worked there but i he was a he liked to play baseball i just like to hang out i used to always go with my dad to pick up my brother so in 1973 my brother wanted to do something else and play in his baseball team so i was asked to um to be a bat boy what's interesting about it this was a bat boy for all the visiting teams not for the giants Mm. So, you know, I had some great memories back then. And I knew at the time I was lucky. I mean, these are the times of Pete Rose and Willie Stargell and and uh, uh, Hank Aaron, uh, Johnny Bench. I mean, think of all the teams, all the players that came through, Lou Brock. Mm-hmm. And I wore the uniforms of all those visiting teams. Wow. I always got booed when I wore the Dodger uniform. I do remember that. Sure. Um, but my main story back then, besides being able to shag fly balls and, you know, all the things, I just was a lucky kid to be able to be there is I remember in 1970, I believe it was 73, so I think it was, that was Willie Mays' last year, but he was playing for the New York Mets. And his mm-hmm. last game, uh, his, so when the Mets came to Candlestick Park, his last game ever, because he was going to retire at the end of the year, was on a Sunday at Candlestick. It was in August. And uh, the whole, you know, everyone who was at the game that day came to see Willie. So right before the game started, if you remember at Candlestick Park, the visiting team had to come walk across the right field uh, field, you come out of right field and walk all the way to the third base dugout. So Willie never came out for batting practice, and um, everybody was waiting. But right before the game started, he finally came out with, you know, everybody starts cheering. And I was already in the dugout, you know, waiting for the game to start, but he asked me to play catch. Mm. And I still remember that to, to this <laughs> day like it was yesterday. And I remember I, you know, it was, it was 12, 13 years old. I was intimidated. I, so I didn't have my mitt with me because I brought it back to the clubhouse before the game started. So all I can find was a catcher's a catcher's um, uh, mitt yeah. that was in the dugout. And he said, no, I'm not going to throw it that hard. You don't need a catcher's mitt. So I <laughs> borrowed someone else's mitt. And I still remember it to this day. But for me, it felt like it was throwing 100 miles an hour. Of course. But it was Willie Mays. And, uh, and you know, he's still here every day. And I still remind him of that story because it meant a lot to me as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Had he been, at that time, do you remember, he had he been gone from the Giants more than one season? Or yeah, how, I think how many did he play I, with I the believe, Mets? Uh, not that long. I, th- I, you got to check. Sixty-nine. I want to say is his no, last no. Year. I think yeah. seventy. Well, he was with us 71. in seventy-one when 71. we won the world. When we won the Western Division, so okay. got traded in seventy-two for Charlie Williams. Got it. So this must have been August of seventy-three, maybe seventy-four. I think it was seventy-three. Okay. But that was a big thing to me, and and uh, but you know, but that was one of my bat boy stories. The other thing is, you know, I I uh, before I moved to the front office in eighty-three, um, and after I got out of college, I, I still. I ran the visiting clubhouse for three, three seasons, oh, wow. 80, 81, and 82, which was a great, uh, it was, uh, 
Um, yeah, you're it, meeting it, everyone. Oh, it was it was just something. I was 19 years old, wow. and uh, the, the equipment manager at the time, the assistant equipment manager who was supposed to run the visiting clubhouse, was killed in spring training, unfortunately. And I heard read about it in, in the in the newspaper when I was at St. Mary's College. And the next day, my Mike Murphy called me and said, "I need you to come back, and you want to run the clubhouse." And I thought, "Are you kidding? This is people do this for a living." Right. But I did that. Of course, I was going to school here in the Bay Area, but I ran that clubhouse for three years, hmm. and um, and I remember you know, some of the stories back then of you know teams would come in at two, three o'clock in the morning. I had to be there with a couple of people unpacking those trucks. Wow. But my one of the stories I had back then was uh, I had two quick ones, and sure. and one of them was uh, you know a lot of times when we were there late at night. You know, you have all the equipment from all these players. I remember we'd, we'd get Pete Rose's glove and Johnny Bench's glove. We'd play catch at four in the morning in the, in the clubhouse. I mean, that was fun as kids. Sure. That was one story. The other story I have is uh, I remember this was like, uh, it was like it was yesterday. We were playing the Houston Astros. The Giants were winning. I, and my mom at the time did a lot, uh, cooked for the team a lot. So she, I'd go to her house and pick up a roasted turkey, and she'd have it all ready to go. So I'd pick it up about the seventh inning or so. But anyway, we, we, the Giants were winning. And for some reason, I got caught. I got stuck getting back into the club. The game was going too fast. Hmm. And uh, um, it was the other way around. The Astros were winning. The Giants were losing. Bottom line is the Astros, uh, the Giants won in the bottom of the ninth inning. So the Astros were upset. They lost the game. And I couldn't get into the ballpark. To give them their and, turkey. Yeah, to get their, 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 because their, you got to have their, their, the, the meal ready for after the game. So I came off the Candlestick Park exit. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, well, I'll try to make my way in. So what I did is I, I ditched my car off the exit, got the two trays of turkey, started jogging with it, and I saw a policeman I knew. And he said, what's going on? I said, i got to get in the clubhouse. So he put me in his squad car, put the siren on, and got me into the clubhouse. Wow, emergency turkey. Oh, God, I still remember <laughs> that. And I remember walking into this. I mean, you can hear a pin drop in there. I felt so bad. But uh, but I got through it. Yeah, and know. they got fed, I'm sure, delicious. Absolutely. It was homemade cooking. Homemade turkey. Kidding? So uh, I was, I was fun. I was a lucky kid back then. I was I was there and uh, in 1989 that was the earth you know we were playing the A's and we were um, you know first of all we were thrilled that we were in the World Series sure. I mean it took a long time to get there um, 20, and uh, almost 30 years and I remember that day like it was yesterday also a lot of these days when you start thinking about it it's it doesn't feel like it's all these years have gone by there's a theme but here. we we started in uh, we had two games in Oakland we lost both games mm-hmm. so we came back to San Francisco down you know the two games and nothing. And that morning, my boss, Pat Gallagher, said, you know, let's go. There. At the time, all the media would be at the uh, at the, ho- the media hotels. They had a breakfast for all the media. So let's go down to the West in St. Francis. Let's have breakfast that day. Let's celebrate a little bit before we go to the ballpark. Right. And I remember that day because uh, the vice president, Dan Quayle, was in town. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at the St. Francis, knowing, uh, going up the elevator to the buffet, seeing all these sharpshooters on the top of the hotel. It's like, this is interesting. It's 90 degrees in San Francisco, which in itself, well, first of all, we were in the World Series, which was odd. For the time we were playing the Oakland A's, which was even odder, mm-hmm. and then um, here we are at breakfast. It's ninety degrees, which is never ninety degrees in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. The vice president's in town. Anyway, we had a nice breakfast, so we go back to the ballpark. In that game, right before the game started, we had this great pregame ceremony, and I remember the time that um, that uh, I was on the field walking out through the center field gate, and out in center field, out in the parking lot, we had a big hospitality tent, and uh, I think the earthquake was at five oh four. And I remember walking out because I, uh, there was a big, there was a, um, a bunch of high schoolers that were holding a United States flag, a big rolled up flag, and they were supposed to walk on the field to for the ceremony. And as soon as the earthquake started, I uh, you can hear you can hear the rumbling and those light towers at Candlestick Park. I remember the clinkety clank sound of those things, you know, go, going back and forth. 
and um, you can hear some cement falling a little bit. But at the end of the you know the few seconds that we the, the ballpark shook and it shook pretty well, mm-hmm. everybody started cheering, <laughs> thinking this is a sign from heaven. And we were down two games or nothing. This is our time. Everybody started clapping. Wow. And um, and then we realized later on, you know, maybe a half hour later, how serious it was. And uh, um, I remember my, we there was uh, up uh, down by home plate up you know a few rows up. There were a bunch of fans gathered around some other fan. And uh, it was a Sony Walkman they had. And they were all looking at this little TV screen. That's mm-hmm. when the first shot of that part of the Bay Bridge had collapsed. Mm-hmm. And you realized how severe what, what was really going on. Um, it was quite the day. And, and one, one lesson we learned back then is that we didn't have a uh, backup PA system. Hmm. So it's a good thing the sun was still out or else it would have been a lot, a lot worse, uh, worse um, uh, story. Uh, one story I do have from that day, though, is that hospitality tent out in center field. I went out there. This is what we were all waiting for a few hours if the game's going to be played or not. So I walked out there and I saw Joe DiMaggio sitting. You know, he was one of the, our guests, obviously a VIP guest, lives in San Francisco. And it was, the marina was on fire, or at least the street that his house was, or maybe a block away. And I remember at that moment thinking, there's Joe DiMaggio, one of the greatest players of all time, sitting there by himself and thinking, at that moment, all of us are the same. It doesn't matter if he's a Hall of Famer, it doesn't matter what I do for a living. We're all affected by the earthquake, you know, evenly. And I don't know. For me, it was just a, it was a very touching moment, and it kind of brings things in reality into perspective. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, now here comes the noise. Oh yeah, the uh, noise is good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, we think about. It, I've been with the Giants for over forty years, and if I look back at all the things we've done, you know, the the bobblehead craze or the phenomenon of bob- bobbleheads is. For me, it's always been something I look back on and said, my God, I can't believe after all these years that bobbleheads are still the number one promotion in sports. But um, it all came about as, you know, those of us who grew up in, you know, as kids in the 60s, when you went to a souvenir uh, stand at a ballpark, really all you really had a choice to buy was a bobblehead, uh, maybe a pennant, a, a program for the game, maybe a pencil with a logo on it, and maybe a keychain. I think that was about it. So, but I remember as a kid having a Giants bobblehead, just a generic player. So in 1999 was our last year at Candlestick Park, and uh, we were looking, trying to develop promotions that that were appropriate to say, you know, tell it could buy at a Candlestick for all those years. And I remembered we we had a promotional meeting for all of our folks, everyone in the in the department, to come up with ideas. And one of the things I thought of was I remember as a kid, um, the bobblehead, and and my mom at the house I grew up with, uh, grew up at still has the bobblehead. And I said, why don't we give away a bobblehead um, of Willie Mays? I mean, Willie Mays is the greatest player of all time. Uh, he's a giant. And let's figure out if we can find a supplier that maybe we, if we can afford it, which is always part of promotions and sports. They all sound good, but there's a price tag to them. Did you Were there yeah. already customized bobbleheads no. that, you, that you knew of? Not just, that we knew of. So you didn't necessarily know that it was possible. Well, thought, yeah, we didn't know that it was. Probably. Yeah, we figured if we could find a supplier, one of our suppliers that we buy everything else from, if we gave the idea to them, can they come up with a prototype? So we gave them the idea. We, we maybe showed pictures of what old bobbleheads look like. So we wanted to look like Willie Mays. There's a photograph of Willie. And, uh, and the person that we um, went to had no idea what a bobblehead was. But they came back a few uh, months or so later with a, with a prototype and said, I think we've got it. Here's what it looks like. Um, and remember, bobbleheads as kids, they were like um, almost like Bob's big boy. It was, yeah. a, it was a doll that it was kind of chunky and the head, the head bobbles Rotund. on it. Rotund. And uh, in this bobblehead, they, the prototype was thin as a rail. It was a little tiny, like a statue with a little head on the top. And we said, no, that's completely wrong. It's got to be a heavy, you know, more bulk to it. So um, they came, they went back. They showed us another one. And uh, 
we ended up doing that promotion. It was a Willie Mays bobblehead day. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the date was, but we knew I knew that day walking around the ballpark that uh, as soon as the reaction the fans had when they walked through the gates and got this box, and the box had some weight to it, that we had a great promotional item that uh, that that worked, and people had a great time. Um, now we didn't know that here we are in 2018 that's still the, the, the number one promotion in sports. But over the years we've done we just we we've done bobbleheads every year. We've we've uh, we've done bobbleheads that are not just players. We've done a Frank Sinatra bobblehead. We did a, a crook and kite bobblehead with uh, with a sound chip. Yes. Uh, we've done Tony Bennett bobbleheads. And I think what the what the message is is let's those of us in the business side of the game is that baseball fans aren't just here to watch baseball. We all have other lives and other interests. So if we can attract a, a fan to a ball to a ball game through one of their other interests, maybe it's a bobblehead of Carlos Santana, which we've done. Um, it's just another fun way to do a promotion. So, but I will say that uh, a few years after that, I was on a vacation in Italy, and I, I was walking in the Vatican, and I saw this, this you know, outside the Vatican, and all these people buying, selling things, and there was a huge table of bobbleheaded, bobbleheads, all of popes. <laughs> I thought, boy, we really, we really got something started here. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald, aka Joe Bigale. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can find Storied San Francisco on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All the episodes and Michelle's photos of storytellers are up over on our website, storiedsf.com. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. You can reach us by email at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Check back Thursday when we'll hear more stories from Mario Aliotto.